Good morning. If you have a Bible, let's head over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Um, There's a lot more people in here that I don't know than I thought would be the case. And that's really, really exciting because it means that God is doing incredible things at this church and people are seeing it and they're attracted to it. And so uh, I'm really excited to be here. My name is Andrew Gaspard. And um, like Chris said, uh, I came through LSU and and was a part of the ring um, back in the day. And my wife and I uh, live in Shreveport now. Uh, We moved there for her to go to school. um, And through some really cool opportunities, the Lord opened up. Um, have decided to stay and plant roots in Shreveport. But anytime I can come back to Baton Rouge, to this church, uh, I will say yes. And so I came to LSU um, as lost as can be as a college freshman. And um, I said in the first service, and it's, the more I think about it, the more true it is that because of the faithfulness of some people in this church uh, in today and the faithfulness of people who have moved away um, came to know Jesus as my Savior and my Lord um, around the age 2021. And so um, in the real world, I guess you can call it, um, I manage a running store in Shreveport. Um, so I am not a vocational minister. I went to seminary um, and knew I wanted to do ministry, but for, for whatever reason, I always felt like, like my ministry would take me beyond the four walls of a church. Um, I don't know why I felt that way, but, but here I am uh, managing a running store uh, where I get to preach the gospel to my employees and to um, the people who I interact with every day. And so I don't stand up here as a vocational minister. I don't stand up here as someone who has it all figured out or um, writes sermons like this every single week. Uh, I, like you, I know the nine-to-five grind. I know what it's like to come home, put the kids to bed, eat some dinner, and try to figure out how do I follow Jesus better today than I did yesterday. How am I more obedient? How do I, how do I adore Jesus more day after day? And so I'm in it with you. So I'm no authority figure by any means. Any authority I have is from the word of God that we will talk about today. And that actually is a really great transition for us uh, because in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul, of all people, is going to have to defend his apostleship. There's people within the city of Corinth um, that's saying, we're not going to listen to Paul. We don't really like what Paul says, so we're um, just going to try to discredit him. And um, Paul's going to say, I'm a real apostle, and um, because of that, I have some rights to apostleship. Um, and so in, in Paul's writing, he can be kind of thick in his writing sometimes, and so I don't want you to get lost in a lot of the early parts of explaining what's going on, because there's application for us absolutely at the end. Um, some things that for us to know about Corinth is that um, the city of Corinth was located like between uh, Greece and the Mediterranean. So it was a, a port city. Think of like a New Orleans where there's a ton of people always coming in and out. And so a lot of mixed religions, a lot of um, different cultures being mixed. And so they, Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthians and they're not in the Bible Belt like we are. They're not all similarly believing the same things. There's so much store going on outside of just their little Corinthian church. And they, all of that idolatry is also tied to a lot of the social gatherings that are happening. So where you or I come in, we do our hour and a half of church, and then we go out and we, then we have our lunch, and then we go about our business. All of the like, religion that's happening in Corinth is also super tied to social settings. So... 
Um, Paul is writing to them about eating food sacrificed to idols and pagan temples. And it's not like they're just randomly doing that. They're going there for business meetings. They're being invited there for birthday parties. And so the Corinthians are trying to figure out, how do I walk with Jesus while at the same time living in such sin and such idolatry of this city? So that's one thing to keep in mind. Another thing to keep in mind is that this is written a letter written from Paul to a very specific group of people going through some very specific issues. And so it is not like Paul decided to come out and write a systematic theology book, and so he covered chapters on salvation and baptism and sanctification, and now the next chapter in that book he's writing is about food sacrificed to idols. This is a specific group of people, just like you and I, who if, if the Lord were to write, or Paul was to write a letter to the, the saints at Living Hope Fellowship, he would write about things that you're going through. And so these are very real issues that are happening within this church. And then contextually, we need to know as well what happened before this. Why is Paul launching into this defense of his apostleship? So in chapter 8, it's a really, really great chapter. I'd recommend you go reading it on your own. But in chapter 8, the Corinthians, they are, are flaunting their freedoms in Christ. They're saying, we can go and we can eat at these pagan temples. We can eat this food. We know that the idols are not real. They're not real gods. So it's not a big deal for us to go and do this. And Paul is saying, you are too self-focused. You need to look beyond yourself and how your decisions affect other people. So yes, you may have the knowledge that these idols are not real and that you eating in these pagan temples is not going to harm your relationship with God. But what if you have a brother or a sister who is weaker in their conscience and they see you eating and participating in these activities, are they not going to be led to sin and led to weaker consciences? So that's what Paul is discussing here. And at the end of uh, chapter 8, verse 13, he'll say, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So he absolutely is saying, you, you're right. You're not thinking incorrectly. You are free in Christ. But we also have to be aware that our decisions affect other people and other believers. They are watching how we behave. And then from here, Paul jumps into chapter 9, where he's going to defend his apostleship. There are people within Corinth trying to discredit him, and he's saying, I'm absolutely apostle, and as an apostle, I have rights. So if you look with me in in verse 1, Paul says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? And are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are my seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So whether, whether for whatever reason, whether they just didn't want to hear what Paul is saying, they didn't like his message and they're trying to discredit him, there are people within Corinth saying, Paul's not a real apostle, so he has no authority here. We don't have to listen to what he says. And there's, there's two uh, pillars that Paul's apostleship is going to rest on that he talks about in this verse. So the first one being, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Paul describes himself in other epistles as being a Jew of Jew and a Hebrew of Hebrew. As to the law of Pharisee, he was so proud of that heritage and he was persecuting Christians and rounding them up and sending them to Rome. And then he met Jesus on the road to Damascus and his life was forever changed. He was commissioned by the risen Jesus to say, I want you to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And so Paul is saying, I'm absolutely an apostle because I've met Jesus and he has commissioned me 
The second pillar that his apostleship rests on is the fact that the existence of the Corinthian church and their faith. He's saying, if you don't think I'm an apostle, you're not a believer because my, your message that you believed in to come to faith came from me. He says, you are the seal of my apostleship. Back in that day, you would make a, a special imprint and put it on some wax to kind of make that seal. Think of like an old letter. And that, that seal marked its owner and it proved its genuineness. Paul is saying, Jesus has stamped his approval of me as an apostle because of the Corinthian church and you as believers. And so Paul, of all people, is having to defend himself from these people who are trying to discredit him. And you have to you know, ask yourself, why? Like, what charge could they bring against Paul? Like, we we kind of hold Paul in this big regard because he wrote half the New Testament, and like, surely Paul, they'll get his message. But why would they discredit him? Through the, through the text, we know that Paul is going to defend himself from two claims. And here are the two claims. They didn't think that he was a real apostle because he did not get paid by the church and that he acted differently in different contexts. He behaved differently. So Paul chose to not let the Corinthians pay him. And later in 2 Corinthians, Paul will say, I should have been commended for this. Like, I, I saved you money. You didn't have to pay me. I didn't burden you with anything. If anything, like, you should be throwing a parade for me because I didn't take money from you. But for whatever reason, you're twisting this against me and you're saying, because I haven't taken, taken payment, that I'm not a real apostle. And then they're saying, Paul, he's a big old fat hypocrite. He's wishy-washy. He is acting this way with these people and this way with this people. This is not behavior that is worthy of an apostle. We don't have to listen to him. And so Paul, and and typical Paul language, is going to defend himself from these two claims. So verse 1 and 2, Paul is saying, I'm absolutely an apostle. I have been commissioned by the risen Jesus to preach the gospel. And part of that fruit of that commissioning is your faith in the existence of this church. But he's going to go on to verse 3. And he'll start defending his rights as an apostle. So look with me in three. He says, This is my defense of those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat or drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and of Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? So, As an apostle, Paul has certain rights. And part of that right is for the Corinthian church to pay him according to his wages. So you all go to work. You work hard for the Lord. And come first and 15th, you get paid. You get paid based on the work that you do. Paul's saying, this is no different. Who, Who, why would I not get paid for the labor that I've done among you? You know, He's saying, I have every right to take a wife and for her to labor alongside me in, in, in marriage and ministry. I have every right to refrain from working, to provide for myself because of the labor that I'm doing among you should, should be my payment. Verse 7, he says, Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of the fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of its milk? He's using these everyday common observances and these, these situations where he's like, who, who does that? Who serves as a soldier at, at his own expense? And the answer is no one. No one is going to do this labor without reaping some of the benefits of it. And so Paul is saying, 
just like the other apostles. He's name dropping all these, all these guys that the Corinthians would probably know. And he would say, just like they have the right and the entitlements and the freedoms to get paid and to be provided for, me as a capital A apostle have every right to do so. Paul is seldom just to make an argument just based on like the way things are. So he's going to appeal to a greater authority, which is the word of God. So in verse 8, he says, Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for the ox that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It is written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much that we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? He's saying, okay, if you don't, if you don't get my point by these agricultural metaphors, let me appeal to the, the Bible, to the law of God. And so in that day, a farmer would take an ox and he would put this threshing sledge on the back of him so the, as the, the oxen would carry it, it would um, pop the kernels off of these grains of stalk and then the farmer would go collect all these kernels. And God in his goodness is saying, when that animal is doing that, don't muzzle him. Don't put a covering over his mouth where he cannot enjoy the harvest himself. Let him enjoy it based on his wages, based on his labor. So Paul is making this greater, greater than argument saying, if, if an oxen can be provided for based on his work, why not we who are sowing spiritual things among you not have even more right to that, not even more entitlement? And when, when Paul says, is, the, is it for the oxen that God is concerned? It's not like a human right or an animal rights issue. God is absolutely concerned about the oxen. But he's saying, because Christ fulfills the Old Testament, those who labor for him absolutely have a right to enjoy the harvest. To take the metaphor even further, Paul is saying, I've tilled the soil of the human heart. I've, I've sown the seed of the gospel. Why would I, as your shepherd, not enjoy some of the milk of the flock. Why, as the, as the vine dresser, why would I not eat some of the, of the grain? And I absolutely have every right as an apostle to this. And so, logically, you're thinking, okay, the next verse, he's going to drop the hammer and say, show me the money. Where's my, where's my payment? Where's my provision? But he doesn't do that. Look at uh, 12, the second, verse, the second part of verse 12. Paul says, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. Like, Paul, you just spent seven verses talking about how right and entitled you are to this provision, and you're maybe getting on board with it, and then you're going to say, I don't need it? Like, what's the deal? Why would he say that? Why would he give up a paycheck? Why would he endure anything so that he does not put an obstacle in the way of the gospel? See, right here you get the very heart of Paul, of how laser-focused he was. He was a man of a single passion. It was the gospel of Christ. Because his passion before that was persecuting the church. And then when he met Jesus, that passion changed to winning people to Christ. So when it says, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything, what he's talking about there is, 
his trade of tent making. So rather than put a burden on the Corinthian church and have them pay, pay him, he labored among them, he served, he preached the gospel, and then he went away at nighttime and started making tents. So imagine you're working your nine to five, you spend all this emotional and physical energy, you come home, you put the kids to bed, eat some dinner, and then you go out and you like build a shed in the backyard. Like that's essentially what he's doing. It's so that they don't have to pay him. He's going to do anything and everything he can to not put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. Even if that means enduring the physical uh, work of tent making. So tents were, in that day were made of leather. They were very heavy. heavy. They, were, they uh, were, were smelly apparently. They um, were just not fun to work with. It's likely that Paul's hands were, and his arms were permanently stained from all this work. He worked at nighttime. So he had just spent so much energy working throughout the day, and then he's coming, he's making tents. So he doesn't put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. And you're like, all right, well, how, why, why is that an obstacle? In Corinth, they just really, really valued knowledge. And they'd have these professional speakers come through, and they would charge a fee for you to hear them um, use this rhetoric and this philosophy. It was a really big deal about like social advancement. So they would advise you on how to get ahead socially. And Paul is saying, I'm going to distance myself from that message and those people. And I'm going to do anything, even if it means building tents. And it wasn't just the idea that Paul was not working or getting paid to work. It was also the fact that like, because they value that knowledge so much, they really looked down on like blue-collar like physical work. And so not only was it that Paul was not getting paid, it was that Paul was demeaning himself with such a blue-collar, unworthy task of tent-making. But he said, I'll do anything it takes. I'll take shame and, and rejection and this hard labor and all of it if it means I'm not putting an obstacle in the way of the gospel. And I have to ask Myself and we, the, the scriptures are going to prompt you to ask yourself, do we value the gospel in the same way that we would say, I'll endure anything, even if it means fill in the blank, so I don't put an obstacle in the way of the gospel? Are we so captivated by Jesus the way that Paul was that any and every decision that he makes is based on, does this advance the gospel message? Does this bring glory to Christ? And so I think you probably have Paul over here who's like always thinking this way, like anything and everything he did, it was for the gospel. And then maybe over here you have like unbelievers or people who never once consider how the gospel is being affected by their decision-making. And then I'd, I'd be willing to bet that all of us are kind of somewhere in the middle here. Maybe some days we're closer over here. Maybe some days over here. But I think the goal for us as we mature in Christ, as he changes us from one degree of glory to another, is that we're kind of inching over here a little bit more day by day. And maybe it's two steps here and one step here. But I think the goal for us is to be like Paul, who was like Jesus, that we put anything and everything out of the way that would ever get in the way of the gospel because he was so captivated by it. And then just typical Paul He's going to give you two more examples as as if he forgot to include them in the beginning. He's like, oh, I have two more examples of why I have right to be paid. So look with me in verse 13. It says, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? 
He's saying, okay, if you don't understand, if you don't think that I have rights and entitlements and freedoms in Christ based on like an everyday metaphor or the law of God, at least we can appeal to God's ordaining of the temple. So when a priest would offer a sacrifice in the temple of the Old Testament, part, a portion of that sacrifice was given to the priest as provision for food to eat. He's saying, this is the same thing. I am servicing myself for the gospel, for God, and so I also benefit from this. And 14, he says, in the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So the highest authority there is is Christ himself saying, Paul has every right to get paid, to be provided for. But Paul is saying, if that right of mine is getting in the way of the gospel of Christ advancing, then I will deny it. I will lay it aside. It is not worth it to me to have this luxury if it means that the gospel is not being proclaimed. Again, Paul kind of flip-flops. He flip-flops a lot in this, and sometimes it's hard to follow, but, but stick with me because I know that you're thinking, why does Paul's apostleship, like, why does that matter to me? Why is Paul getting paid or not, this arguing? Like, why does it, what does that have to do with me? So we'll get there. In 15, he says, I have made no use of this choice, of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any provision. For I would rather die than anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I will have a reward. But not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as to not make full right of my use, use of my right of the gospel. He's saying, I'm not writing this for you. You'd have pity on me. I'm not looking for any back pay. I'm explaining myself for why you know why I didn't get paid. If that's one of your hang-ups, I'll explain it to you. I did it so the gospel could advance, because that was the best way for the gospel to advance. That is number one priority, because I am so captured by Jesus, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. He's not under any resentment. He's He's not coerced into preaching this. He's that passionate about Jesus, because of what Jesus has done in his life. He's saying... I'm not doing this of my own will. I have to do it. And Paul is kind of unique because he met Jesus uh, after he rose from the dead and he gave him this commission. And so in some way, Paul's, his mission is unique. But in some ways, it's really not because we're all called to the same thing. You and I are all called to lay aside our rights, our freedoms, our privileges, our securities, our bank accounts, all of it, our hobbies, because if it gets in the way of the gospel, it is not worth it. And I think it's possible for us to live this way, to live this way that we, we deny ourselves, we lay our freedoms and our rights aside. I think it's possible for two reasons. One, because Jesus has already given us the perfect example of this. You don't have to turn there, I'll read it for you, but in Philippians 2, Paul also wrote this letter to the church in Philippi and said this, Let each of you, I'm sorry, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but to the interest of others. 
and have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. So Jesus, who eternally existed, who was in heaven being showered with praise and adoration and glory within the Trinity, said, I'll lay all that aside and come to earth and die for my people. I'll lay aside all of that because the gospel advances that way. And so you and I can do that because if we want to be like our Savior, we represent him and we reflect him. And this is one of those ways, as we said, I can have this comfort, this security, this, these, I have certain rights, but I will deny them so that I can advance the gospel. The second reason that we can do this is because we're only going to lay those rights aside on this earth if we have an internal perspective that we are exchanging those temporary earthly rights and freedoms and entitlements for something far greater in heaven. I think maybe this is part of what was said about Jesus when it said that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. I think he had this eternal perspective that this, this earthly laying down of my rights and my freedoms and my entitlements leads to the gospel advancing and there's a reward in heaven for me for it. Verse 19, so the, these previous verses, Paul has been defending why, um, why he did not get paid. That's one of the hangups they had. He said, all right, I'll explain it. Now in, in 19 and following, he's going to explain why it is that he had this different behavior, why he acted one way with this context and one way with this context. Look with me in 19. It says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. For though I am free from all, I have no obligation to anyone. I have no approval that I need from anyone. I'm free. But because that freedom is not a selfish freedom, I'm free from that to make myself a slave to all people. Why would he do that? That I might win more of them. And if that, that phrasing, the win people to Christ, that kind of rubs you the wrong way, if you're kind of weirded by that, just change it. See people come to faith, offer salvation, those type of things. But the, the point is the same, is that Paul is saying, everything in my life is a means to share the gospel. Nothing is random. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became one under the law, though myself not being under the law, that I might win those under the law. Paul's saying, you want to know why I act like a Jew when I'm with the Jews? It's to win the Jews. I'm not changing the gospel message, but I'm changing my behavior so that I have an audience with them. I have uh, approval from them in a way that they will hear my message. Paul, like I said, he was very proud of his Jewish heritage. And so that gave him an audience with the Jews so that he could share the gospel with them. 21, it says, To those outside of the law, I became as one outside of the law. No, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. 
So we know those outside the law are Gentiles. Those who are not um, um, relying on their religious heritage for, for salvation. So Paul says, you want to know why I'm acting like a Gentile when I'm with the Gentiles? To win the Gentiles. That I'll change my behavior in any way I need to if it means that I can share the gospel effectively and that those who are around me give ear to it and hear it. Paul says, I became all things to all men that I might save some. You know, I thought about this the other day. Uh, when Christy and I moved to Shreveport, um, I needed a job so we could eat. And so um, i always been a runner, wanted to well, always work at a running store. So I joined this running store. It was a mile and a half from my house when I Googled it. And so I started there, and I was an hourly employee, and I was just selling shoes. And uh, when I came in, I clocked in, and when I clocked out, I was done. Like I wasn't thinking about the store again, wasn't thinking about sales, how do we better reach people. If the boss calls, I wasn't going to answer. That was my time. You know, I'm, not, I'm not on the clock. And then through God giving me a lot of favor and opening some opportunities, moved up to manager, which was a salary position. So um, in order to do certain activities at the store, although I don't need to clock in to keep my hours, I need to clock in so I could do certain activities. And so I am literally like always clocked in at the store. Like right now, I'm clocked in. I looked yesterday, I've been clocked in for 1,138 days in a row. Since May 14, 2017, I've been clocked in. And so now, even this morning, someone texts me from work, and I have to answer that text. When someone calls, you know, I'm thinking about our sales. I'm thinking about when I leave the store, how do I, how do I improve sales? What do, how do I make social media better that brings people more into the store? When Christy and I are at dinner, I'm looking at people's feet. What are they wearing? What are they wearing? What's the next big thing that's going to happen? How do I get in on it? I have more stake in the game now than I did when I was clocking in and clocking out. And if you will allow me to make a really corny analogy, I think Paul understands this because Paul is always clocked in. There's no clocking in and clocking out for him in ministry and living missionally and living for the gospel. Paul doesn't clock in, go preach the gospel, clock out, and go do whatever he wants. He's saying, people are watching. I'm so motivated, so captured by Christ, that anything and everything I do is a means to share the gospel. So where you live, where you work, your hobbies, your kids, your kids' friends, your kids' friends' parents, all of them are not randomly put in your life. It's sovereignly put in your life as a means to share the gospel. Because there are certain fears in life that you have influence over that I don't. So I became a runner as a runner to win the runners. You figure out where you fit in. But we have to be so captured by Christ and the gospel that this becomes a priority in our life. It's become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. Do we live this way? Do we teach our kids this is what success is? Is it getting into a good school or is it becoming a professional athlete or is it using your influence to share the gospel? And maybe you're thinking right now, 
Man, if someone asked me to share the gospel, I would just cry because I don't know it person like perfectly to put into an order. I would say you probably know it better than you think you do. And you have a testimony of what Jesus has done in your life that no one can argue with. So you share that. And then you're thinking, well, Andrew, I, if I have a job, I have a house, I have kids, I have all these influences, that's way too many. Just pick one of them. Start there. Say, let me start praying about people I interact with at work. Let's just we'll leave everything else out. Let's start with work. Let's start with my neighbor. One neighbor who you have a little bit of rapport with, you start thinking and game planning and strategizing, how do I be all things to all people that by all means I can share the gospel? Because he's worthy of sharing. We have a gospel that's worthy of sharing. This last little bit in, in 24, Paul kind of gives his like halftime speech, kind of like a, like a pep rally, like a rally of the troops. He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable reef, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So in Corinth, there was these games that was like second in importance only to the Olympic Games in Greece. And so they would really have registered with this uh, athletic metaphor. And so it took to enter the games and to compete, it took like 10 months of training. And if you didn't do the whole 10 months of training, like you were disqualified, you couldn't even start the race. And Paul's saying in these verses, this is, you don't just stumble into this missional living you don't, we're not going to wake up tomorrow and say, I wonder how I can share the gospel with my coworker. This is an intentional effort. It requires a game plan. It requires discipline. It's very, very important. It says, run that you may obtain it. Run, there's, like, there's no participation medals or ribbons in this race. Like We're running for a prize. Run, run determined. They run and compete for a perishable wreath. Like, I know what you're imagining, like the, like the leaf and branch on their head. Like, that's what it was. And so they get this wreath, and that's their, that's their honors of winning the race. But in a couple of days, that, that's going to wither away. But our reward is so much more secure. Undefiled, kept in heaven. Like, Jesus guarding it, secure, if we run this race well. So there's, there's like a... a an encouragement and a warning here of like, let's be people who run the race well. And in, in addition to our store selling shoes, we also have a race management company. And so a lot of times when I'm working those races, I'll go out early in the morning and before the race starts, I'll go mark the course out. So um, you just like take flour and you like put an arrow on the ground, kind of put it into the ground. And so the people know where to go, where to turn. Paul is saying, do not run aimlessly you got to stay on course. You can't just rush, get to the starting line and then like end up like three miles the other way. Like That's not part of the race. Be a part of the race. Run it well. He's not a boxer who is aimlessly just throwing punches, using all this effort, but he's not hitting his target. And so I think that you kind of have two takeaways here. If you are in Christ, I think the biggest takeaway is 
Have we considered the gospel enough? Have we, do we let it marinate in our lives and to the point that we're going to make these changes? That we say, I'm so captured by what Jesus has done and so thankful for who he is that other people need to know about him. Have you ever thought like why when you get saved, you don't just get like beamed up to heaven? It's for you to use your influence and be all things to all people so that you can lead people to Christ. We have to value the gospel enough. We have to think about it and think about how good it is. And the other takeaway is that if you are not in Christ, if you're visiting and you don't know Jesus, let me, let me share the gospel with you now. The fact that Jesus, you know, Tim Keller once said, the gospel is this, that you are more wicked than you can ever imagine and God is more merciful than you can ever imagine. The fact that you and I were enemies of God, we weren't just bad people, we were dead people. And because he loves you so much, and he is so committed to his own glory, that he sent Jesus to come down and die for you and take away the sin that separated you and I from from God. And he didn't just leave us in this neutral position where he took away all the bad stuff, but he also gave us his righteousness. So when God the Father looks at you, if you are in Christ, he sees Jesus' perfection and his righteousness. It's mind-blowing. The fact that he would be this good to us. And it's no amount of good works. It's not church attendance. It's nothing but your faith in Christ to say, I believe that you did this for me. And so that is, if that doesn't get you excited in your soul, we need to have a conversation. And that is the message that we have to share with other people. And you get to use everything about your life to do that. And so just like the runner, just like the boxer, I pray that we would take that very seriously, intentionally, have a game plan, that we're willing to set aside our rights for the gospel, our our kids' futures, our bank accounts, our status, our comfort, our security. This is why we are here, to share the gospel. But what's so beautiful about it is that the way that you share it and the way I share it is different. Just like Paul, he shared it differently. He didn't change the gospel message. He didn't water it down. But you have influence. Be a good steward of it. You have hobbies. Be a good steward of it. Because Jesus is worth it. So the bank can come on up. I want to pray for us. And what I want, a lot of times when... I feel like when the pastor asks you to pray, I pray, when I've been in your situation, the pastor prays, I close my eyes, and I kind of just wait till he's done, kind of disengage. If you will, will you close your eyes and will you join me in praying for these things? That when you go home today, you talk to your spouse, your kids, maybe you say, okay, what is, a, what is an area of influence that we have where we can use it to share the gospel? What is a right that I have been clinging on to that is an obstacle from the gospel being advanced? And then pray about it. Now, a wise man once said, I don't know where this hits you. That wasn't in my notes, and I'm really glad I got it right because it's been a while since I heard him say that. I don't know where it hits you, but I know where it hits me. But we have to, like Paul, who has been entrusted to be a good steward of this, we as well need to be good stewards of this. Let me pray for us.
Jesus, I'm grateful that we have a gospel to begin with. But there's good news for sinners, and his name is Jesus. You have been so good to us, and you have designed our lives in such a way that we have so many areas that we can impact for the gospel. I pray that today, if anything, we would just be aware that 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 is a reality in our lives. And that you and your spirit would be very personal to us and help us very strategically, full of love, full of truth, full of grace, we would bring this gospel message to others. That we would be so enamored and in love with Christ and what he has done for us that we would not be able to not preach the gospel. In word or in deed, would we be a people that look just like you? I'm praying in your name. Amen.